0: We do appreciate everyone's uh, presence today. Looks like we got a good number here this morning. We're glad that each one is here. Uh, we do have some guests with us today. We're, we're glad that you're here. Got some old friends with us today. You m- might have seen uh, Phyllis Crawford come in. And uh, she's right back there near where she always sat. And if you haven't had a chance to speak to her, I'm sure uh, she'd love to, to speak with you a little bit before she has to get, a, get away today. Uh, we've been here for a long time I think from uh, time to time how much I, I need to say this so we 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 really appreciate that opportunity it's just been a blessing to us to be associated with the church here and uh, you've uh, helped us and encouraged us along the way I hope it's been a mutually beneficial relationship but uh, it's just been a blessing for us to be here and I just feel like I need to say that every now and then and so I just wanted to take a minute to express that uh, this morning. When I spoke last, which was a couple of weeks ago, last week uh, we were involved in our gospel meeting, but before that, remember I talked about an episode from the life of Moses. And what took place in Moses' life at Meribah. uh, And uh, how Moses on that occasion, the people were grumbling because they didn't have water to drink, and God told Moses to speak to the rock, very rocky area of course, but speak to the rock and God would provide water out of it. But Moses, no doubt in, in frustration and maybe a little bit of anger, got caught up and acted impulsively and, and really kind of claimed to be able to provide water himself with, with Aaron, his brother. And he rebukes the people, shall we bring forth water out of this rock, you rebels? No, it wasn't Moses and Aaron bringing water out of the rock. It was the Lord, of course. But in Moses' words, the way Moses expressed it, it's almost like it was he himself who was bringing water out of the rock. And then he takes his rod and strikes the rock. We talked about the consequences of that. God told him to speak to the rock. Moses strikes the rock. And he doesn't give God the the credit for providing the water. He, He takes that credit upon himself. And talked about the consequences of that. The consequence was that Moses would not be allowed to go into the promised land. And so he leads the people of Israel 40 years through the wilderness, comes right to the threshold, right to the brink of the promised land. And God says, I want you to go up into Mount Pisgah, Mount Nebo, and you can look over into the land, but you can't cross the Jordan and go into the land itself. Even though Moses had pleaded with the Lord, no doubt on multiple occasions to change his mind and allow him to go over, God says, no, and I don't want to hear any more about it. And so our actions have consequences. Sometimes we make bad choices, we make bad decisions, and that brings about bad consequences. Now, now, now we don't want to face that sometimes, and sometimes we might work in order to sort of reduce the consequences or do away with them altogether. But our actions have consequences, and if we make certain decisions in life, we're going to suffer the consequences of those decisions. Now when you come to the New Testament, look really at the rest of the, even the Old Testament, the rest of what the Bible has to say about Moses, what we realize is that if we were to leave it there, if we were to not uh, come back to the story and, and talk about Moses a little bit more, we'd really be doing... a a disservice to Moses. Moses was more than just that one episode at Meribah where he makes a, a bad mistake. Moses is a great man. and He does great things. He's a, he's a godly man and he's approved by God. The Bible speaks in the very highest terms of Moses and his relationship with the Lord. In, in Numbers 12, chapter 12, for example, God says of Moses, He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings, and he beholds the form of the Lord. God has a special relationship with Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, where Moses' uh, ascent into Mount Pisgah and looking over into the the promised land is described. Even on that occasion, he is referred to as a servant of the Lord. Quite, Quite an honor to be described as a servant of the Lord. And then a little bit later, verse 10, Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses was a great man. He was a godly man. He was a leader among God's people. He had God's approval. When Moses' authority is challenged, God defends Moses' authority. We've already seen that from Numbers chapter 12. When we come to the New Testament, and we ought to add to that Deuteronomy chapter 18... God says, I'm going to raise up a prophet, talking about the Messiah. I'm going to raise up a prophet who's going to be like Moses. And so that also indicates that God has a very high opinion of Moses. Even though he made a bad choice at Meribah, made a terrible mistake with terrible consequences, Moses has God's approval. In the New Testament, he appears with Jesus and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 5, he's described as faithful in all God's house as a servant. An allusion back to the statement in Numbers chapter 12. In Revelation, those who are victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name sing the song of Moses. And so you see that in Revelation chapter 15 and verse 2. They sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Moses must have done something right, you know. Talk about his experience at Meribah, what a foolish choice it was. Well, he had to do something right if all of these good things are said about him. And that leads us to the observation that sometimes we can make choices. All of our choices have consequences. Some of them have really bad consequences. But sometimes our choices have good consequences, So let's just balance this out a little bit, and let's talk about Moses' life from that point of view. So let's turn back to Exodus chapters 1 and 2. We're going to take a look at a statement found in the New Testament eventually. We're going to look at the background of the statement here, Exodus chapters 1 and 2. You remember the descendants of Abraham, the children of Israel, went down into Egypt. Joseph was there. Remember, he was raised up to second in command in Egypt. He's storing up food for the coming famine and so forth. Joseph had been sold by his brothers into slavery. And eventually his brothers and their families come down along with Jacob. And they're given a place to live. And so the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, they grow and they they increase in number and uh, they, they, they thrive. They do very well for a while. And then in Exodus chapter 1 verse 8, a new king arose over, over Egypt who did not know Joseph. They, they didn't know Joseph. They didn't approve of his people. And so that Pharaoh enslaves the Israelites. They become slaves in Egypt. And the Egyptians treat them very harshly, very, very roughly, very you know, they, they treat them very badly. But the number of the Israelites continues to grow. They become more numerous and they become more populous. The Egyptians are so threatened by that, especially Pharaoh. and You can understand his fear. The number of slaves is getting to be more than the number of non-slaves. We, we might be in trouble here, you know. And so he decides, I'm going to kill all the Israelite boys that are born. So he tells the midwives... If a boy is born, I want you to kill him. And they refused to do that. And he told all the people, when an Israelite baby boy is born, I want you to kill him. Well, Moses was born under those circumstances. Now, his mother and father were righteous people. They didn't want their son to be killed. And so they hid him for three months in their home after he was born. When they couldn't hide him in their home anymore, remember, they made a little basket of a bull rushes, uh, sort of a wicker basket, and they put the baby in the basket, and they, they put him in the Nile, in the basket, floating in the Nile. And they told Moses' older sister, Miriam, and you, you watch him. You go down there to the riverbank, and, and you watch. One day, Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the river, and she finds Moses, and she, she's going to take him for herself, to be her own child. Miriam steps out, and... And says, that you know, it's obvious this is a Hebrew child. And Miriam says, how about if I get a nurse for him? And Potiphar's wife says, okay, that sounds good. So who does Miriam go get? Moses' own mother to take care of Moses. And so Moses is nursed and raised for a period of time by his own parents, by his mother. And he's exposed and he's uh, in the company of his, his own family. No doubt during that time, Moses is being taught about who he is. You are an Israelite. We are Israelites. We are God's people. We have a special relationship with God. God chose our father Abraham and the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he's being taught all of these things. But eventually, when Moses gets old enough, he's he's taken by Potiphar's, I mean by Pharaoh's daughter into her home, and he's raised as her son. He lives there as the grandson of Pharaoh. Wow, What is he lives a life of luxury. Uh, The Bible refers to all the treasures of Egypt that were at his disposal. He's educated in the learning of Egypt. And so you can just imagine, here's the the Pharaoh, the king of all the, the country, very wealthy, powerful country, and Moses is raised as his grandson. Just imagine the, the, the advantages that he had. Not only that, he's an exceptionally bright child growing up. He's gifted. He has certain gifts and, uh, and talented. And so here's a person growing up as Pharaoh's son, a grandson, talented, gifted, Now, it kind of makes you wonder if we wouldn't be reading about Pharaoh Moses if he had decided to stay in Pharaoh's house. We we may very well have been reading about him in that way, but but that's not what happens. Moses, when he's about 40 years old, he decides, he makes a decision. He decides to make a break, to make a break from Egypt and align himself with Israel. Remember, he's sort of in between up to that point, isn't he? He's an Israelite. He knows he's an Israelite. He knows the Israelites are held in bondage. He knows how they're treated. But he's also kind of an Egyptian. He's living in Pharaoh's house, enjoying all the luxuries and privileges and rights that would come to a grandson of Pharaoh. And so he's sort of in between. But about forty, when he's about 40 years old, he makes a decision. He decides to align himself with the people of God. He takes a stand for his people. And in doing this, he renounces his place in Egypt. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up, he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other, and he said to the offender, Why are you striking your companion? And he said, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh, settled in the land of Midian, and sat down by a well. Moses makes a decision, doesn't he? I'm going to align myself, I'm going to join myself to the people of Israel. I know who they are. I know how they're treated. I'm going to stand up for them. I'm going to advocate for them. I'm just going to be one of them. And of course, in so doing, he gives up all the treasures of Egypt. We might say, when he kills the Egyptian, he crosses the Rubicon. (laughs) That there's no going back now, is there? There's, there's, no, there's no going back. In fact, Pharaoh wants to kill him, and Moses has to flee. Flee's out into Midian, where he spends another 40 years. There's a price that Moses had to pay for this choice, isn't there? I mean, all choices come with a price. There's a price to be paid for every decision we make. And, and Moses had to pay the price for this choice. He lost everything he had in Egypt... But there was a reward, too. He gained everything God had to give him. So see, you see, sometimes our choices, like Moses' choice on this occasion, it was a good choice. It has good consequences. Well, let's go to Hebrews chapter 11 now, and and this is really our passage for the day. Hebrews chapter 11 says this, beginning in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for a reward. And so we're going to talk about the choice that Moses made to align himself with the people of God. Just draw out some lessons from this episode. The first thing we want to note is, you know, making decisions that have a dramatic effect is, is possible. We can do that. Now just think about the decision that Moses made and what a dramatic, drastic effect that had on his life. Living in the luxury and the treasures of Egypt, being educated in the ways of Egypt, and no, no telling what his future might have held if he would stayed there. And then he chooses to align himself with the slaves, the downtrodden, the oppressed, the mistreated, the Israelites, his brethren. And when he makes that choice, he makes that commitment, he kills that Egyptian, Pharaoh finds out. Now there's no going back. This is a drastic, life-altering, dramatic decision in the life of Moses. Why did he make this? Why would he make this kind of decision to leave a life of luxury to a life out in the wilderness, keeping somebody else's sheep, you know? Why, why would he do that? Well, he tells us right here. He's looking for the reward, sometimes the best option for us. As we're facing decisions in our lives, sometimes the best option, the option that will bring about the best consequences requires a life-altering decision. And sometimes, that, not always the case, but sometimes it is the case. Sometimes the best job opportunity. So here we're struggling along in our jobs. We don't really like it that much. There's not much of a future there. We don't really like the people that we work with. But, but here we are in, in this job, and, and we think, boy, you know, I'd like to do something else, but I'd have to change my life. Oh, I'd have to learn a new skill. I might have to go back to school. I might have, you know, it just, you could do that. That, that can be done. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you individually ought to do that, but it can be done, can it? We can make life-altering decisions that work out to our benefit. Now, don't get the idea that, well, you know, I'm just stuck right here. Life circumstances have just, you know, they put me in this place. I don't really like it where I am. I know that there's something better for me. And, but, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just stuck right here. Mm-mm. You know, if we go to the doctor and the doctor says to us, you know, uh, Bob, uh, you've got some problems here that, that you need to address. But, and and to address them effectively, and you can do that, you can address them effectively, you're going to have to make some changes. You're going to have to stop exercising that elbow so much, you know, you're going to have to stop eating so much, and you're going to have to change what you eat. Instead of that bowl of ice cream every night, that ice cream sandwich, you're going to have to cut that out and eat a carrot or something, you know. Not, you know, not, uh, not an enjoyable choice, but, but you know, and, and you're going to have to exercise a little bit more. And, but you know, you could do that. I'd have to change my life a good bit. I, I like my bowl of ice cream every night, but, you know, I don't really eat a bowl of ice cream every night. It's just a coffee cup. <laughs> but, uh, but my point is, you can do that. It's, it's, it might be changing your life drastically, but it it can be done. Now if we follow Jesus, we might have to make some drastic changes. Remember in Matthew chapter chapter 10, uh, Jesus tells the disciples on that occasion that He didn't come to bring peace on the earth. I came to bring a sword. I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother. And then verse 36 says, A man's enemies will be the members of his family, his household. And maybe if you become a Christian, your relationship with your family changes. And that would be a drastic change, a life-altering change. But you can do it. If you're sitting here and you you know, I know I need to become a Christian, but that's going to affect my relationship with my family. That's going to affect my relationship with my friends. That might affect my job. But you could do it. Just because a decision requires drastic change in our life or our lifestyle, doesn't mean we, we're stuck where we are. I, I don't know of any better example, really, than Saul of Tarsus. I, I've often wondered what that conversation wa- must have been like when Saul of Tarsus went back home. You know, he did go back to Tarsus. And he went home and he, he, he said, Mom and Dad, i got some news. You better sit down, <laughs> you know. I've become a Christian. What you become a what? Now I don't know if that's the way it happened or not, but that's sort of my imagination. He does make a drastic change in his life, though, and it affects his colleagues, his relationship with his colleagues, and maybe his family. But he did it. He could do it. We can do it. It's be like being born again, but you must be born again to enter God's kingdom. We're capable of making these kinds of decisions. Moses did it, Saul of Tarsus did it. Everyday, ordinary people are making decisions that change their lives in profound ways. Do you want to be able to make decisions that turn out for your good? and you make decisions that turn out for your harm, for your disadvantage? Do you want to make decisions, make choices that turn out for your advantage? If so, You need to be ready to make some life-altering decisions. That may very well be necessary, but you can do it. We can do that if we have the will. Second point I want to make is this. Making decisions requires us to look beyond the present to the the future. We've got to look past the promise of immediate gratification. A lot of times that's what we see. Well, you know, we've got a decision to make. Well, you know, I can decide to do this, And the gratification is just immediately, immediate. It'd be great. I would enjoy it. It would be so pleasurable, so much fun. (coughs) But we need to be able to look beyond that, beyond that immediate gratification to the future. See, that's what Moses did. He was looking to the reward. Now, he had the immediate, all the treasures of Egypt right there at his disposal. But he, he was looking beyond that to the reward that God had to give. And so in order to make a good decision, a wise decision, a decision that's going to bring about the best consequences for us, we've got to be able to look beyond the moment, look beyond the immediate, and look to the future. Now there's a passage over in the book of Lamentations. I don't quote from Lamentations very often, but, but there's a, a, a good passage that fits in very well from that place here. uh, Lamentations chapter 1. Remember what Lamentations is about. It's about the destruction of Jerusalem uh, at the hands of the Babylonians. And in verse 9 it says, her uncleanness was in her skirts. Talking about Jerusalem in a figurative way. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. And then verse 9, New American Standard Bible, she did not consider her future. She did what she wanted to do. Jerusalem did what she wanted to do. Worshipped idols and so got caught up in idolatry. And she didn't think about her future when she was making that decision. And what's this going to lead to? What it led to, of course, was the destruction of Jerusalem. In other words, we've got to think about the future. How many people among us and how many people do you run across in their old age look back and say, you know, I wish I'd made some different decisions in life. Or maybe I'll express it in this way. You know, I wish I knew then what I know now. I do things differently. How many of us, as we get older, look back and wish, you know, I just just wish things were different? Don't let that happen. (laughs) Don't put yourself in that position. Learn to make good decisions and wise decisions here and now, one thing we need to do is think about the future and think about the future consequences. Cannot just get caught up in thinking about right here, right now, immediate gratification. We need to be slow in our decisions, deliberate. We, we don't need to act impulsively. And I know that comes easier for some than others. Some have a problem with impulsivity. And they go into the store and they, they want that. Okay, I'm going to buy it. And then they think about, well, could I, have a, could I really afford that or not? You know, it's just the impulse buying gets people in trouble. And so we, we have to resist that and think deliberately and slowly and try to think things through by taking into consideration what will be gained and what will be lost in the long term. Go over to the book of Proverbs with me, and we'll just look at a, a couple of passages there. Proverbs 19, verse 2. Also, it is not good for a person to be without knowledge, and he who hurries his footsteps errs. The one who hurries his footsteps errs. He needs to be slow about where he's walking. Of course, our point is not about walking. It's about living. So just be slow and deliberate. Don't act hastily. Chapter 21 of Proverbs in verse 5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty." You know, you be slow and you be deliberate, you think things through, you take stock, you think about the long term. Okay, it's going to be good for you to do that. You act hastily or you're going to to end up in poverty. And then chapter 29 of the book of Hebrews and verse 20, chapter 29 verse 20, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Ever speak without thinking. Now if we're in the habit of doing that, well we're, we're going to have some problems. The way Jesus expresses this idea is count the cost. Count the cost. Count the cost of your decisions. See that especially in Luke chapter 14 and talks about a, a general who's putting together, he's facing, facing battle, he's putting together his army and he's, well you know we're outnumbered. It might be better for me not to go into battle but uh, Come to a resolution with my enemy, or, or a man who, who starts building a barn, but, but he runs out of money, didn't think about what it's going to cost him, and so he spends all his money and he's got a half-finished barn out there. So got to count the cost. Think about the future. Be deliberate in your decisions. Be, here's some things to think about. How is my decision going to affect the people around me? How, how is this choice going to affect others? How, how is, how, if I take this route, how is that going to affect my wife or my husband? How is that going to affect my children? Okay. How, how is that going to affect my career, my work? How is that going to affect me financially? How, how is this going to affect my good name? And so here's a man, and he's tempted by this woman, and he's thinking about becoming involved with her. You know, his impulse might be, you know, to act on the temptation if you think about the future, if you'll be slow and deliberate, and think about the cost. If I get involved with this woman, what's that going to do to my wife? It's going to crush her. No, I I don't want to do that. What's that going to do to my relationship with my wife? Well, it's pretty much going to be over. It's going to be a disaster. I I really don't want that. How is this going to affect my children? Well, I'm going to be every other weekend, two week in the summer kind of dad. I I don't really want that. How's this going to affect my brethren? (laughs) Well, I'm not going to have nearly the influence with them that I I, I need to have. How's this going to affect uh, my good name? No, that'll, that'll be shot. And so I'm faced with a decision. I've got a temptation in front of me. Now let me think this through and think about the future. It's better to resist... And have these things, that it is to act impulsively and give them all up. You can see how that works. Some Our decisions have good consequences. Now when we make decisions that have bad consequences. We're trying to train ourselves to make decisions that have good consequences. A third point: make good choices. To, making good choices takes courage. When Moses chose to align himself with the people of God, he, he put his life at risk, didn't he? Pharaoh wanted to kill him. Remember that? We noted that in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 15. Sometimes making decisions that bring about good consequences requires us to put ourselves at risk. Moses chose, according to our passage, Hebrews chapter 11, he chose to endure ill treatment. He's putting himself at risk. He considered the reproach of Christ. He's putting himself at risk. And so sometimes making good decisions takes courage because we put our, ourselves at risk. Maybe not our lives, but we might risk a relationship or a career or something like that. Let me give you a, an illustration. Here's, here's a, a girl. She's a high school girl. She's dating a guy. He begins to put some pressure on her. He, he, he's pressuring her. She really doesn't want to give in to the pressure, but, but she thinks, you know, if I don't, I, I know the relationship's over. I know he's gonna want nothing to do with me. So I've got this temptation. Here's the immediate benefit, but, but you know I'm gonna put the relationship at risk if I refuse. Well, you need to think about the future. You need to think about the long-term consequences, and you need to have the courage to make the right relationship. And I would say, I would tell you, if you're in that position, I would tell you, if, if, that, if those are the conditions for the relationship, you don't want that guy anyway because he's, he's not interested in you as a person. He's just interested in what you have to give him, really, more than you as a person. And so you don't want that anyway, <laughs> but you need to have the courage to make the right decision, a decision that you're not going to regret in the future. Sometimes when a person makes a good decision, other try, others try to hurt him or her. They slander him or her. They work to their disadvantage. They malign you. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 4. Do you remember Jesus says, we looked at this several weeks ago beware when all men speak well of you. (laughs) Beware when everyone speaks well of you. If you stand for what's right, some people are going to say some bad things about you. You just have to have the courage to deal with that. And then, then finally, making good decisions requires some self control. And you see it in the passage. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, no doubt, there was a part of him that enjoyed that, that life of luxury. Now, he lived in that for 40 years. And so he had to discipline himself and control himself to refuse those things and choose ill treatment. It took some self-denial. It took some self-control to do that. The Bible teaches us to develop self-control. See it in 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter says, Add to your faith moral excellence, to your moral excellence knowledge, to your knowledge self-control. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says that I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest after I preach to others, I myself might be rejected. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. He's simply saying that I, I control myself. I discipline my body. In Titus chapter 2, the grace of God instructs us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly. Deny. That's that's self-control, isn't it? Deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Self-control is the ability to listen and act on what the mind is telling us to do rather than the impulses of the body. The mind is telling us, if it's educated correctly, don't yield to that. Or it might be telling us, you must do this. And self-control is that ability to follow and do what we know is right in the face of temptation. it's a good quality to develop in lots of areas of life. To be sure, Moses acted impulsively at Meribah. David acted impulsively, or in haste at least, in his sin with Bathsheba. Peter acted rashly when he denied the Lord. In every case, what did they need? They needed some (laughs) self-control. Moses needed some self-control at Meribah. David needed some self-control when he saw Bathsheba bathing. Now, he might not have been able to to resist seeing her initially. He's looking that direction. But self-control, turn away, get your mind on something else. And Peter needed self-control when he denied the Lord. In Joshua chapter 7, we read about Achan going into Jericho. Israelites had been forbidden to take any of the spoils. But remember, Achan saw some things. The Bible says, quoted him as saying, I saw these things, I coveted them, and I took them. That sound familiar? That <laughs> goes right back to Genesis 3. I saw, she saw the fruit, she wanted it, she took it. That happens to us. We see the temptation, we want the temptation, and if we don't have self-control, we need self-control not to take it. Speaking and acting in haste leads to trouble. We've already seen that. Several passages from the book of Proverbs, we've got to learn to say no to the impulses of the flesh, to give no opportunity to the flesh, or the promise of immediate gratification, and follow through with the right choice. If you want good consequences, You can can make decisions that bring about bad consequences or make decisions that yield good consequences. If we want the latter, well, then we're going to have to develop some self-control. Again, we're faced with many consequences or many decisions throughout life and just about every area of life, personal conduct or family or friendships, how we treat other people, our career, all of those. What kind of decision maker do you want to be? What kind of decision maker do you want to be? You want to be the kind that acts impulsively, doesn't think about the long-term consequences and ends up in trouble? Or do you want to be the kind of decision maker that considers the factors, thinks things through, that weighs them, and then makes the difficult decisions, sometimes the difficult decisions that bring about good consequences, especially we're talking about especially in eternal matters in our relationship with the Lord. You can make good decisions. It might be hard, but you can make good decisions. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together to look into your word and to hear what it has to say to us. Father, we pray that our eyes have been opened today and our ears have been opened and our hearts have been opened to receive the things that we see from your word. Father, help us to see the things you want us to see and help us to make them, to apply them to our lives, to make them relevant uh, and, and applicable to our lives. Father, we pray that will be people who will make good decisions, that we will resist the temptations that, that, that promise immediate gratification, that we'll be able to see through the superficiality and the shallowness of those promises and help us, Father, to see the long-term, the eternal consequences of our decisions and help us, even though it may be difficult, to make the decisions that are advantageous to us but also the decisions that will please You. We know, Father, that pleasing You will work out to our own advantage in eternity. And so help us, Father, to develop the wisdom and self-control necessary to make those kinds of decisions. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you're here today, the best decision you can make is to become a Christian, to become a child.